Hey, this is Sasha Shell, and you're listening to Dear Seekers, a biweekly podcast celebrating intriguing, interesting, and insightful women in fashion, arts, and design. Before we get into today's conversation, I'd just like to take a moment to thank all of you who have left nice comments on Apple Podcast and our Instagram. Your support really means a lot. Please keep them coming, so many more women like you can find us and hear stories from these inspiring ladies. Our guest today is Beth Nicholson Craigo. You may have not heard of her name, but if you are based in Toronto. You most likely are familiar with Opel, a locally handcrafted luxury handbag brand. Before joining forces with Opel's founder Amy Malcolm, Beth's vision had traveled far and wide. She has worked at Michael Kors, and then came on board with Derek Lamb when he started his label in 2003. Oh, by the way, he personally designed Beth's wedding dress for her. And after Derek Lamb. Beth joined fashion house Tycoon, and then Wes Gordon. If these experiences are not impressive enough, just wait till you find out who was her intern. I will leave this as a tease. But despite all of these glamorous experiences, Beth is one of the most down-to-earth and funny women you will ever meet. With a glass of white wine, we're sitting on her couch chatting about a conversation with her parents that changed her perspectives when she was in high school, about one of the biggest sacrifices she has to make as a mother, and about what it means to choose what you're willing to struggle with wisely. Well, welcome officially. Oh, thanks. <laughs> To Dear Secrets podcast, <laughs> thank you so much for having me again. Of course, <laughs> it's my pleasure. It really is.、Thank、I love、so、to、much. talk, like I said. So, <laughs> but but I didn't know you have two sisters. I do. So you are the middle one, or in the middle? Yeah. Wow. Because I think I'm pretty typically a, a middle, but maybe、yeah. I don't know. It depends what people's perception of a middle is. Yeah, I do think the order of siblings、yeah. actually contribute a lot to. Someone's personality,、mm-hmm. of course, depends on the age gap as well. Yeah, well, I'm only a couple of years younger than my older sister, and then three and a half, almost four years older than my younger. Okay, still pretty close. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we're all very close. My older sister lives away in Germany, so we don't see her as much, which is unfortunate. But my younger sister lives here. I just babysat for her last night. Oh, really? Yeah.、Aww. She has a six-month-old baby, so. Six months—that's、mm. the cutest time. It's so cute. Oh, and I didn't have to do anything. He just slept the whole time.、So. <laughs> I was watching home reno shows and stuff. Oh, really?、Mm-hmm. So tell me、mm-hmm. about who Beth is. Oh, <laughs> I mean, such a like hard question. <laughs> you know, um, maybe maybe let's start from the beginning then. Okay. I know you were born in Toronto. Yes. And then tell me more. What was your childhood like? I would say I had a pretty idyllic childhood. I don't have any really horrible memories of being bullied. Family was a huge part of our life. We were very close knit family, family of five. So 
we did everything together. We skied on the weekends and I was always doing something creative, whether it was taking piano lessons or I was in the choir or being in the play at school or whatever. So lots of laughs. My family is really funny. <laughs> and I think what kind it, of humor runs in your family, like sarcasm or is it um, like silly jokes, lots of silly jokes and voices and imitations. And we just like to laugh a lot. And we have inside jokes of remember that time. And my husband would come to dinners at my house and we would like be crying, laughing like we can't breathe because we just have so many jokes. And it was such a contrast to what he was used to that he was like, oh, my God, your family is crazy. They're so funny. And like, you just don't think about it until like somebody else comes in and explains it to you. What kind of significant things now looking back happened in your childhood kind of clear things up for you a little bit? My parents were very, um, they were strict. And there was definitely an expectation of how well you should do. And I think they set us up for the drive and determination that I had later on that I, I had to, I wasn't going to settle for anything less than what I really wanted and would work really, really hard for it. Mm -hmm. So I definitely think that they set me up for that really well. I wish I could explain how they did that because I would like to replicate that with my own child, <laughs> but it's... It's hard. And, and it's, it's like a delicate balance between being super hard on your kid and encouraging them to find their spirit. I do remember a conversation within the family of like, what's your passion? What's that fire in your stomach? And I was like, what? What does that even mean? I think I was. How old were you? I, I don't even, maybe I was in high school. And that really got me sort of not nervous, but like, oh my gosh, I need to find that. Hmm. I, I need to find that because if I am just sitting here sort of waffling, that's not good. I need to find out what that is. And so I think when I went to university and I mean, I studied English, but my sort of major was like drama and theater. Thought I wanted to be an actress, which was. <laughs> I could totally see you. But like, good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> like, I was not necessarily prepared for do you think they would be supportive if that was the path of course take? yeah 100 percent. my parents have always been supportive of what i wanted to do right and so they were strict about you have to work hard but if that is your dream yeah. then we will support you oh yeah so i was gonna do theater and was sort of going back and forth and having my own like issues with rejection even in university and mcgill isn't even a like theater university at all so if I'm not getting the part there, I'm not getting the part, <laughs> right? Like, So did you go to any audition? There? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I was in shows and stuff. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. I did some musical theater and oh. yeah, it was fun. Um, so what kind of rejections did you get? Second or third year, we did a chorus line and... In the auditions, and then I got the call back, and it was they had set us up with the like whatever the seven or ten of the people on the line from a chorus line. I don't know if you've seen it, and it was very clear like who was up for what part. So I like thought that I had the part, and then I didn't, and they gave it to this other girl. And do you remember how did you take that rejection? Oh my god, it was horrible. 
How did they inform you? Well, it was brutal because my roommate was also in the show. And so the director called our house. Of course, I recognized his voice. I answered the phone. He's like, oh, can I you speak You answered to- the phone? Yeah. He's like, oh, can I speak to, to my roommate? I was like, oh, my God. So I knew then that I wasn't getting the part because he was... Oh no! My, he was calling my roommate to tell him that he got a lead and thing. So did they know it was you pick up the phone? Of course. Oh my god, that was so awkward. So I got like different part, and then I was like the understudy for the part that I wanted. So it was a big lesson in humility, and I still did it. And I went through the experience of doing the show and learning everything and learning all the lines, and and I did perform the actual role. I think three nights out of the run of the show. Maybe it was two. I can't remember. But anyway, it was a big lesson in humility and rejection and not being the best. And um, what was the lesson there? Um, I think of how how to take rejection, how to turn it into something positive. And the best thing about that whole experience was the friendships and the people that I met. So I turned it into like building a community instead of this is my chance of having the starring role kind of thing. So I don't regret that at all. I still see some of those people um, that I met during that process. So that was a good lesson. But it also sort of was a bit of a reality check. Like, okay, this is what it's going to be like. Is this what you want for your life? Is this what you want? Beth had this conversation with herself and soon realized it wasn't. This reminds me of an article I read a while ago by Mark Manson. It's called, The Most Important Question of Your Life. Before I read a paragraph to you, take a guess, what is it? What's the most important question of your life? If your answer is, what makes me happy? What do I want in my life? Or anything along that line? Well, you might be looking in the wrong direction. According to Mark Manson, of course. I actually quite agree with him, though. Here is his argument. A question that perhaps you've ever considered before is what pain do you want in your life? What are you willing to struggle for? Because happiness requires struggle. The positive is the side effect of handling the negative. Therefore, what we get out of life is not determined by the good feelings we desire, but by what bad feelings we're willing and able to sustain us to get those good feelings. It's pretty amazing, right? But just wait, he further explains. If you find yourself wanting something month after month, year after year, yet nothing happens, and you never come any closer to it, then maybe what you actually want is a fantasy, an idealization, an image, and a false promise. Maybe what you want isn't what you want. You just enjoy wanting. Maybe you don't actually want it at all. Everybody wants something. They just aren't aware of what it is they want, or rather, what they want enough. (sighs) It's definitely something I've never thought about before. But back to Beth. She wanted to be an actress, but she knows she doesn't want or rather want it enough to go through the struggles, the auditions after auditions, one rejection after another. But she does soon find out 
something she really, really wants. This fashion show happened at school where every year they'd have like local Montreal designers come and the like students were the models. So I like auditioned to be in the show and I was really into some of the designers that were showing, one of whom I particularly connected with and after the show just came to me. And that was sort of that spark that you're talking about, that little fire thing. I was like, oh, this is this is something. This is something that I could do that is different and it's unique and it's still really creative and I can go and pursue this. And I really liked the idea of being different, which is so funny because fashion is such a big industry now and so many people are in it. But that's how old I am. Literally, I was like, oh, this is so different. Nobody else is in fashion. Nobody that I knew anyway was in fashion. So I did that and I interned with them for good, at least a year. And learned a lot and it was like small business and it was super interesting to see the inner workings and we traveled to New York to go to trade shows like we drove from Montreal like in a freaking ice storm <laughs> like all night but going to New York and just being like wow this is this is amazing mm-hmm. and that was sort of the stepping stone to to okay I need to move to New York and this is where it's all happening So, she knows moving to New York is the next step. But not only that, she is also very clear about the step or two or three after that. She is a woman with a plan. So I applied to FIT because I couldn't see any other way. How, how was I supposed to move to New York? You need a work visa, all that stuff. So I figured if I went to school, you can get a student visa. And if I could do that, then that was sort of my way in. So that was sort of my whole game plan. It was a game plan. I was like, this is what I'm doing. It was a year program. It wasn't for the certification or anything. I don't know that I actually learned that much from the schooling part of it because I interned the whole time. Like the second that I got there, I went to the internship office, went to the binder, picked out some places that I thought that I recognized Mm -hmm. the name of, and I applied and I got an internship at Michael Kors and I started right away. And that was like my education. Oh, wow. Yeah. And learning of all the different processes and you you don't have any clue from the outside of what goes on in a fashion company and Mm -hmm. how it operates and it was good because it wasn't corporate like it was still really small at that point but corporate enough that you get to see like how it's all structured and divided and what roles different people have and so that was really interesting Mm -hmm. and to just have the knowledge that oh product development is something that you can do Mm. You know, and and that's a completely different set of skills than the person who's like actually designing the clothing or whatever. Right. So the whole thing kind of opened up the door for you, yeah, in the fashion industry, yeah. Because before, from what I understand, before mm-hmm. this fashion show happened at school, mm-hmm. you probably didn't even think about fashion could be a possibility. No, not at all. I mean, literally, I, like one door closed, another door opened. Yeah. Oh, for sure, a hundred percent. And that's happened to me a million times. It's amazing how I manifested that for myself, really. I think about that now because it's not easy. Yeah. It's not easy to do that. I think it's also right time, right place. Like everything is, right? Like I don't think I had as much competition as there would be now. Even competition for internships of like getting in with those designers is very, very tough. Yeah. It also is that much more expensive to live anywhere in the world now 
particularly in New York and here too. So being able to intern and live off of nothing and like pay the rent is like, it's impossible now in New York. You can't, you can't do that. So how did you get a job after an internship at Michael Kors? I think it was November before I even graduated. They were like, okay, we want to offer you a job and have you stay. And they like helped work out with my student visa and all of that stuff and did that whole classic, like make yourself invaluable. And they really wanted to keep me, which is amazing. So yeah. Yeah. What do you think they, they saw in you? I think probably the drive, the determination. I would stay late with them voluntarily just because I wanted to observe the process and I wanted to see how they did it and how they mm-hmm. merchandised the collection and why and what decisions they made and all that stuff. And <laughs> oh, we have a visitor. We have a visitor. <laughs> the know, visitor is Beth's to... husband. Yeah, sure. He quietly walks in. We end up having a quick chat and he securities into the bedroom to let us continue. The reason I'm keeping this in here is to show that most of the times there are many supportive partners behind this podcast. They will leave the space for us to record. They will hang out in a coffee shop or take their kids out to play. I feel bad about it, but I'm also very grateful. Oh, this wine is actually really good. Oh, good. This is my first time. Mm-hmm. I like it. Delicious. Ooh, I, yeah, I really like it. Mm-hmm. All right, where were we? So let's get back to it. Yeah. (laughs) Where were we? I think we were talking about, so you got a job at Michael Kors. Mm -hmm. Do you remember now you officially live in New York? Because before was more internship school, but now you're actually a contributing resident (laughs) to the city. Yeah. How did that feel? I had the best time of my life living there. Mm. It was incredible i also had three of my girlfriends from high school also moved down there oh that's the best my best friend we were 25 and had like the time of our lives you know you're young when you're young is the best time to live in new york Mm -hmm. and we would go out everywhere and we knew the maitre d at this restaurant and we'd always get a table and you'd bring us free wine and all of that stuff like it's so cliche but it, it was amazing yeah it was just incredible i wouldn't trade it for the world even at the time i remember being like this isn't real like i am in a movie like this is unbelievable all of the creative types that live there and just being exposed to that and being inspired by them and just you know, it rubs off on you. And it was a very exciting time, Mm -hmm. a very exciting time. And there's so much energy everywhere. Like I'm a extrovert through and through. So that energy really, really fed me. And I just couldn't get enough. I loved it. I have some crazy stories of being there. It was Tell me one that now just came to your mind that you feel like, oh, that was must be in a movie. So I was out with one of my girlfriends. (laughs) And we Wanted to go to this tapas bar on 9th Ave. Can't remember the name of it now. Tia Pole. That's the name of it. And it was notorious. Like, it didn't take reservations. And it was literally like a hallway. It was so small. (laughs) And it was notorious that you would have to wait. So we went after work one day. We were waiting. So we decided to go next door, which was like a sake bar. And we're like, let's just have a drink here. I think we drank like a bottle of sake or something insane. Because we had to wait an hour to get a table next door. 
So by the time we got there, we were really inebriated. <laughs> like we were having a fun time. And just two of you? Just the two of us. And we decide we don't need to eat anything. You know, when you're like past the point of being hungry, we're like, oh, we can just have these like two toasts and we'll be fine or whatever. Like we ate not a lot of food and had more drinks over there. So we were really at this point and we're walking outside and she's like elbowing me, elbowing me, elbowing me. I'm like, what? She's like, oh my God, that's Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, what? She's like, Jake Gyllenhaal's right there. She's like, we're going back in. I'm like, okay. (laughs) So, So we go back in and we like stand at, there's like a little standing bar and he's sitting at the bar. And she's like, you have to go and talk to him. I'm like, why do I have to go talk to him? You know, I don't need to go talk to him. She's like, you have to do it. I'm like, okay. So me like having a little extra confidence, I decide to go over to him and I'm like, hey, so we're going to go karaokeing later. Just wanted to know if you wanted to come. <laughs> what? And you he just was, invited him? Yeah. And he was like, oh yeah, well, we got to go meet my sister, but yeah, I don't know. Like, so uh, like, what's your favorite karaoke song? And I was like, oh, it's Black Velvet. He's like, oh yeah, sing it. I was like, okay. And I totally did. I was like, nah, like full on sang Black Velvet for him in the bar. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And then we started talking about what our favorite musicals were and whatever, just chit chat, whatever. And anyway, he wanted my friend's phone number and she wouldn't give it to him. What? <laughs> yeah. She wouldn't give it to him. What was her reason? She had a boyfriend. Oh, wow. That's yeah. very noble of her. I know. <laughs> So she definitely need a word for that. <laughs> wow. So I know I've That's told amazing. that story a lot of times. So sorry to my friend if she's listening to this. But it's just one of those things where you're like, what? What were we doing? Like we just had guts and just, yeah. Yeah. Like just funny, amazing stuff like that. Yeah. So I think that's kind of like gradually happening in Toronto. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The other day, I, I was walking on Queen Street West, mm-hmm. and oh, I'm really bad with names. I bump into the supermodel that was the face for Oceline. What's her name? Daria? Yeah. Nice. And then I don't- Did you talk to her? No, because oh. I was like, maybe she didn't want to talk to anybody because yeah, she yeah. was walking with someone else. I well, don't she's wanna... Canadian, right? I think she mm-hmm. is, but it's just so interesting. Like She just like off-duty, walking on Queen Street. Actually, that kind of reminds me of a topic I didn't anticipate we're going to be talking about, but kind yeah. of lead to that. I was thinking the other day how the digital footprint mm-hmm. is out there, mm-hmm. and then everybody can recognize anybody if you're following each other on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Especially Toronto now, it's, it's a, such a small community, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How the digital footprint is going to make it more difficult for self reinvention? Yeah. For, yeah. What's your take on that? It sounds like you have a different take. I mean, I think that as much as the digital footprint exists, people are moving so quickly that they forget what happened yesterday. Mm, that's true. So if you come to them with something new today, they'll probably embrace it. I think in the overarching like designer world, like if we're talking about old Celine versus new Celine and all of that that's happening right now. Oh my God, that's a whole tone new podcast i'm so passionate about it oh i know <laughs> uh, it's 
yes, that digital footprint. And I mean, the fact that that he erased the entire Celine Instagram to start from zero is disgusting and whatever. That's a whole other conversation. But so there's that. That's its own issue of the cycle of, you know, celebrity or head designers that are like musical chairs happening through all the big houses now and what that means and loyalty and brand recognition. And that's a whole other set of issues. I think in Toronto, we don't have that. There's no long standing like house of fashion in Toronto that you're like, oh, that history has existed for 50 years and Mm -hmm. whatever. So reinventing ourselves is a lot easier. Mm -hmm. I also think that in the smaller even niche that like we exist in, it's so female heavy. I'd like to think very supportive of each other that I think if you want to reinvent yourself, there's like a whole crew of women that are there to support you and lift you up. Right. Mm -hmm. I believe that. I really do. I think that's what case would be in Toronto. Really? Mm -hmm. I think on a bigger scale, it's different, but here we're still in the baby phase of developing the industry, right? Trying to figure out where it's going and how we can nurture it and grow it and Mm -hmm. build it to where we want it to be recognized in the larger world stage, I guess. If, if, if that's even necessary, I don't know. We want to be recognized globally because that's where the market is. It's a global market now. It's not just about selling your stuff in Canada. So having more recognition from the rest of the world as, you know, a fashion capital or whatever it's, however you call it, would be nice and would probably legitimize. But I think we're just not there yet. We're still like growing and trying to navigate and figure out what our spot is. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it could be about there are a lot of makers and crafts people here, mm-hmm. you know, about the craft of making things. And we could be about that. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be a corporate view of fashion. Like right. I, f- I feel like New York is much more corporate, a commercialized view of fashion. Mm-hmm. What sells, 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 sells. It's not necessarily about the art. Or at least that's the sweeping generalization view of it. It's always like, oh, Italy and Paris are more experimental. They're more artistic. Um, So what can Toronto be that isn't one of those things? Can we be more about the craft? Can we put into place training of young people to learn the craft of making Mm -hmm. something with their hands? Or is it the flip side of that? Are we more of a tech city where... You know, we we do have a number of like really big tech companies here now. Like, is that where we transition to? Is that what we specialize in? Is that what we become known for? You know, I'm sure there's room for lots of different versions of that. But I think we're still finding our feet. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Which makes it hard. I, I, I think it's in that sense, we should really be like holding up and supporting and putting energy into helping these people because it is extremely difficult what they're doing like extremely difficult Mm -hmm. to carve out a path and to carve out an industry at all is you know to be trailblazers is really really hard yeah especially when the city is not being fully supportive because the rent everything is so expensive Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. just the other day i was in roncesville going through all these like antique shops and this old gentleman 
he had like actually three storefronts. I was like, how could you afford it? Wow. And he was like, I'm closing these two. And then I was like, why? You know, and he was like, the rent is too crazy. I can't do it anymore. And then you just broke my heart because you, he has so much value in his store. Mm-hmm. And then Roundsville, few years ago or even a couple of years ago wasn't even that big mm-hmm. so a lot of artists can actually survive there mm-hmm. to craft their art take yeah. time in the next couple of years more artists have nowhere to go in mm-hmm. toronto because mm-hmm. what artists need pretty much two things time and space it's a shame and it's also where where does that take us like i think new york has gone through it and continues to go through it that cycle of growth and booming growth and so much commercialization and then it just once the artists have paved the way and made it cool and hip and then the commercialization and then more commercialization and then it's like empty Mm. there's tons of articles about bleecker street in new york when I first moved there, it was like laundromats and delis and antique stores and, you know, paint your pet portrait store and, <laughs> you know, like that really charming places that as soon as like Mark Jacobs moved in, you know, everybody wanted to be on that street and it became just overrun with like fashion. It was like this, it was like a mall basically. And now it's like all vacant. Because the only people who can afford to be there are banks or, you know, huge corporate places. So it's like, is that what we really want? Mm. It just, it's just, that it's, that's greed. Yeah. Right? Because you're just like making the rent so, so, so out of reach for anyone except a bank. And you're going to just hold out and keep your storefront vacant mm-hmm. because you're waiting for that person who's going to pay you fifty thousand dollars a month or whatever yeah. you know it's crazy yeah so and that kind of tie back to what you also shared earlier is that this kind of idea of toronto might become the next tech city mm-hmm. and i hope that's going to bring more business here but mm-hmm. at the same time i also hope it's not going to be just a bubble you know and then that turned into something that is not what we hope for. Right. And especially when you drive around a city, you will see all these old buildings have so much character are being turned down into condos. I know. And then not even the condos, the cool condos. It's just like glasses yeah. and then it's like yeah. pretty like easy build, yeah. quick, fast kind of condo buildings. Yeah. There are cubicles and people yeah. just move in and it actually costs quite a lot. Yeah. I don't know. Just talking about it just make me getting very emotional about it. I know. I It makes me very upset. It's just, where are the creative people supposed to go? And the thing is, like, creativity and, and art and make with our hands or with our minds is, you can't replicate that. You, a computer can't do it. A robot can't do it. Art is defines a culture right and so to not have that you're losing your identity basically you're losing such an important part of what makes humans special i hope it doesn't happen in my child's lifetime because he's a creative kid you know he's not sporty he's like he's really creative and i want him to feel the ability to go after whatever his dreams are just like i felt that you know I felt like the world was open and I could go after whatever I wanted to do. And I hope that he feels that too. I'm afraid that he won't.
really wanted to talk about your experience after Michael Kors. Yeah, okay. Because that was one of the highlights. When I was at Michael Kors, my boss, who was like the VP of design, was Derek Lamb. And it was right after 9-11, actually. And he left to go start his own company. And literally, I think it was the fall after that, that the big company sportswear holdings invested in Michael Kors. And the division that I was working in, which was the Coors division, they shuttered it. So basically after Labor Day weekend, they were all like, sorry, guys, you didn't have a job anymore (laughs) to our whole team. And I had actually been still seeing Derek and I'd been helping him out a little bit in my spare time. And he was like a real mentor to me at the time. And he said to me, okay, you know, I'm doing my first runway show in September. If I get some good response and if I get some sales, like, I'll hire you. So we did the show and like Anna Wintour came and he got great reviews and it all started and he was like, okay, you've got a job. So he brought (laughs) me over and I started out like in production and just sort of doing everything. It was him and me and this other woman who had also worked at Michael Kors and she was doing sales for him. So for someone who don't know about fashion, Mm -hmm. so what exactly what kind of roles were you doing at both Michael Kors and so at Michael Kors, I did product development. That meant I did a lot with the fabrics. So I helped sort of oversee all of the fabrics that were coming in, organizing them, categorizing them. Um, eventually, as I progressed in the role, I started selecting the fabrics too and traveling to the fabric shows in Paris, which was amazing, <laughs> um, and picking out which fabrics and just seeing through the whole process and whatever trims and buttons and ribbons and whatever we needed, I would source them. If there were special embroideries or sequins or whatever, I would help source them. So, mm-hmm. and then at Derek Lamb, I did production pretty much because we were working with this uh, factory in Italy that I was familiar with because we'd worked with them at Michael Kors. And you have to mention one of the highlights. Who was your intern? <laughs> we have to talk about We have this. to talk about this. Yes, Alexander Wang was my intern. And he's such a sweet kid. He really oh my was. God. He was so sweet. And he was great. He was hilarious. Super was funny he? guy. Oh, yeah. He's I super he funny. he was really shy. Of course, I never met him in person. No. Oh. I mean, maybe he was. But when you get to know him, he was really funny. And- mm. Did you know he was going to be so successful at that time? Become one of the you most know, I loved... Ca- I could tell that he was cool and that he knew what he was doing. He started out just doing knitwear and I could tell like by the stuff that he was developing that it was just, it was cool. It was on point. It was He had something going. He had something for sure. I can't say I knew he would be that successful, but it's pretty amazing how well he's done for himself. Yeah, and then after Derek Lamb, I uh, worked at Tacoon, which was incredible. And he's such a totally different personality type, but mm-hmm. super creative and like super generous creatively. What like, do you mean by that? He was very accepting of other people's ideas. Mm. And that's really hard for mm-hmm. a designer because mm-hmm. you usually have your vision, you want to mm-hmm. go buy it. Yeah. And he just didn't follow the rules. He was never trained in school to be a designer. So he just did it himself and had his own techniques that he created. And it was incredible to watch. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I really responded to that because I wasn't trained 
to be a designer either. And there's definitely a, a faction of the industry that's like, well, you have to go to school and be like this and have this training and da da da. Do you though? And seeing Takun and the success that he had and how he was able to like translate his ideas and communicate them and create pieces that as he envisioned them without that training, it was like, this is a perfect example of how creativity can manifest and actually be realized in in different ways. It doesn't have to just be one way. Mm -hmm. So that was probably my favorite job working Mm -hmm. with him. Keep on learning, absorbing, experiencing in New York. Beth is living in a movie, which she is the leading role. But then a reality kicks in. I got pregnant and my pregnancy was a bit rough and whatever. And post baby, I didn't want to go back to work right away. In New York, it's like after three months, that's it. There's no, and there isn't even any really paid maternity leave. So three months is like it. And then you go back to work and I just wasn't ready. And unfortunately, I didn't go back and I think about it all the time that should I have gone back because of how much I loved that job and being there and I often feel like I threw something away very carelessly without thinking about it and you know the fear of not getting that back but you know like we said at the beginning like one door closes and another one opens so that's always been true and I think every part of my journey has been an important and valuable one. So, so when I first moved back to Toronto from New York, I had a 15-month-old child. I was still actually commuting back and forth to New York about once a month because I was consulting for a little company down there still, which sort of just kept my like foot in the water kind of thing. But eventually I realized it wasn't a sustainable thing. I wanted to be able to be around and figure it, you know, put my roots down here, basically. So trying to figure out what the scene was here and navigate that. I started painting, uh, which I'd never done before. I sort of took a couple of classes and taught myself and really found that a really nice creative outlet. And the teacher was amazing. And he was like, just bring art that you like and try to do it. And it's so much harder than it looks. So much harder. So just through that process of experimenting, how do you make it look like that? How do you do? Uh, abstract art is not easy. You know, people think you can just like, it's not randomly yeah, brush it. And then you so look good. hard. So trying to experiment with techniques and how do I do this and that a new sort of avenue of my creativity that I never explored. So I enjoyed that a lot and eventually sort of came into this technique that I was into and I made some paintings that people were like, that's really good. Like you, you could sell that. And a couple of my friends, a couple, they bought it, which is so nice of them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, okay, maybe I could do this. And, you know, I just, just, this is how I am. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go and be in the artist project. And I'm going to show my art. And I'm going to sell it. I don't know why. It's <laughs> like, okay. So I did. And Are you that type of person, if you think about an idea, you just go for it? Yeah, I guess. 
Yeah. Yeah. So you don't take time to marinate, overthink, sometimes even torture yourself during the process. You kind of just go for it. I don't think I do. I sometimes I do, but in this case, no. I was just like, eh. I, I went and I walked the art, artist project before I did it mm-hmm. the year before, and I was like, "There's people in here. Like they're not any better than me. Like I can do this." Hey, listen, the first year I didn't sell a single painting. And it's expensive to be in the artist project. But I don't need to sell like millions of paintings. Like this isn't my full-time gig. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've often thought about like if I did devote all my time to painting and really developing and like trying all different techniques, could I survive on it? But that's a tough, tough slog too. That's a really hard road. Yeah. So, And then you have to really enjoy the suffering as well. Oh, yeah, because it's suffering. <laughs> it is suffering. <laughs> Once again, it's a process that Beth doesn't think she wants to suffer through. But it also leads to the opportunity of meeting her now business partner of Opel, Amy Malcolm. The person who did my sort of logo and branding is the same woman who did Opel's branding. So she wanted to introduce me to her. We went to the one of a kind show together. And that's where I met Amy. And Amy was at a a point where she was like, oh, I would love to talk to you about consulting. So we met and we hit it off and we just started out with me consulting and with my experience in the fashion industry, like help navigate some of the stuff and help try to build some structure into it, try to get some more sales inside of it. Even though I didn't have experience in sales, I love people. So it makes sense. And then that just developed into me working more and more with Opel. I had some other fashion consultant clients as well. And then I just sort of pared that all down and started working with Opel full time because it just clicked the most for me. And I just became very like intertwined with the vision of it. You know, we've talked about trying to get into different areas whether that's jewelry or clothing, just to sort of open up the audience. And as we talked about last time, because mm-hmm. with handbag, mm-hmm. especially when it's so well made, mm-hmm. the retention rate is going to be really low. Yeah. Because what's the chance you're going to need another well-made bag? Yeah, they last Probably for like a really long up to time. a couple years, right? Oh, for sure. People so, have them for eight years and they're, they still look brand new. No, I mean like a couple years to return and get a new one or yes, yes, within yes. a year or yes, something. Yes, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah no, for sure. So and then, so now with the accessories you just launched mm-hmm. and clothing. Well, we have some of the pieces, like we've just started making all of the clothing that was in our campaign shoots. Mm. So we just have slowly been showcasing those pieces, which are basically each one of a kind at Souvenir. Mm. Because Danielle is, you know, such a supporter. She's like a creative wrangler. Yeah. You know, she likes to like bring it all together. She's so passionate about it and has such an incredible eye and really wants to see and nurture that, Mm -hmm. which I think is incredible. So we've just been sort of testing the waters with her. Mm -hmm. And it's been fascinating because the pieces that make my heart flutter are the ones that are selling. So that is exciting. I think I found Opel a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was excited to discover you guys. Oh, nice. So what do you think Opel is trying to 
kind of bring on the table? I think a lot of the Canadian customers love to know that it's made here and they want to support that because it's important now. Mm -hmm. It really is. A lot of love and care went into every step of the process. But yeah, I think it's own niche. And that has been its own challenge for us. Because there isn't a path. There certainly are other handbag lines in the city. And we are friendly with all of them. But we don't necessarily look like them. So we're addressing a different person. And I think finding more of those people and finding the right way to talk to them is our biggest challenge for sure. Mm -hmm. And we're always coming up with trying to find strategies of how we can do that. Because I've always said, once you see it, once people put their eyes on it, most of the time they really like it. Mm -hmm. It's just they're not seeing it. So how can we get more eyes on the product? And that's another challenge is like very delicate. It's that how to stay niche to satisfy mm-hmm. those like seekers mm-hmm. to who yeah. find your product. Yeah. And then they want to be unique. Yes. At the same time, speak to a broader audience from a business yeah. perspective. Yeah, no, for sure. I think we've certainly got a lot of wiggle room to grow and not be alienating the seekers for sure. I don't think it's ever been our intention to be huge in corporate and, you know, we make the stuff. It's mm-hmm. impossible for us to be an enormous business. Yeah. Like, if. Cause you have an Opel bag. I don't want another person I walk into. Right. Or another third person. <laughs> right. So, oh, good that we both, we all like love Opel, but <laughs> not necessarily I want to be wearing exact same thing. Right. So that can, that thing will be the mm-hmm. ultimate challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are definitely not there where every third person is wearing a bell, that is for sure. And we don't want that either because it does devalues the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at like Michael Kors, like... That's, yeah. You know, it's so oversaturated. And that's on a completely different playing field. Like that isn't... We are the absolutely antithesis to that. Like, no, their distribution is enormous. But it's too much. And I don't think we would ever get to a point where it was that big. Mm-hmm. So hence why you want, we're going to keep the bags small and niche. We want to address some other categories to, you know, fill in the blanks kind of thing. Yeah. You know, and I think it makes sense to the story of the brand, who she is, to see some other dimensions of what she might look like or what she might wear or what she might do with her life or whatever. So that's sort of been our our thinking behind it. If you can vision Mm -hmm. your biggest dream, Mm -hmm. either with Opel or your with yourself as well yeah what would you see in like i know this sounds like very overly asked question but we will see in five ten years that i'm gonna give you two answers to that i would like to have a store of some description doesn't need to be brick and mortar i think probably it wouldn't be and have a full lifestyle of things and i think a lot of those would be collaborative projects between all the different people that I love and respect and admire. An incredibly loyal person. And I make the mistake of thinking, 
this place I'm going to be forever. And I don't think that's ever realistic. And now I'm like, I want it to be like a moving target that I can just like respond, react, create, respond, react, create, where you don't have to follow the fashion cycle or, you know, and, and work collaborating is also something that really, really invigorates me. The second part of that answer would be, I always have wanted to help people. That's always been something very at the core of my roles where I am, as I'm always like that person that helps. You know, when I was at Derek Lamb, I was like his right hand. I was like always there in the supporting role kind of thing. And how I see the industry here, like I want to solve it. I want to say, let's do this, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, but who am I? You know, I'm not somebody to... You're Beth. Yes, I am. But, uh, you know, I'm, I've never also been someone to stand up and be like, I've got the answer. This is what we're doing. <laughs> so I would love to have some program or I would love to be a mentor in some way to like help to slowly build that infrastructure that is so needed here. Mm-hmm. And you what know, do you think are needed here? I mean, there's so many things, but what other top things? A real support network that helps businesses with the fundamental building blocks of what they need to survive. You know, having a runway show is one thing. Which did cost a lot. It costs so much money. But do you know how to do your cash flow every month and figure out what your expenses are and like how much revenue you need to cover those expenses and how, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. those kinds of Not things, so fun part. Not so fun part, but like it's absolutely necessary if you're going to actually have a business that succeeds and that can pay you and that can grow. And also nobody's going to look at you from an investment standpoint unless you have a really tight set of books, right? Also like connecting, you know, venture capitalists with, these small companies that might need an influx of money or people in the industry who have the experience in sales. So yeah, there's the financial side. There's also the production side. Like we said, because of rents, like it's really hard and expensive to have a factory of any sort here. So how are people making their stuff? How are they finding the place place to make it properly? And how do you connect with the right people to do that? And where do you find the right community that will let you in, that will help support you and so that you can say, let's collaborate, let's help each other, let's lift each other up, whatever. I, I don't know. I, I'm sure it's a very idealistic view to some people that that's the way I think about it. And how would I ever make money doing that? That's the crux of the problem. But I really, truly do like to help people. And I want to. That's really nice. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Yeah. So, the rapid fire. Okay. Okay, so we talk about this. I guess I know the answer. Mm -hmm. The weird thing about you, not that many people know of. What, that I sing karaoke? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Are you in the mood singing today for two lines? What should we sing? Sing the one that you... What's the song you sing for... Um, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Just okay. two lines. It's fine. Um, Mississippi in the middle of a dry spell. A Kenny Rogers on the Victrola up high. Mama's dancing, got baby on her shoulder. The sun is setting like molasses in the sky. 
Oh my god, you have a beautiful <laughs> Thank voice. You. Thank you. <laughs> very a lot, a lot of hidden talent. Okay. Just keep like layering, like keep coming out. Okay. So what's your ultimate favorite film? Princess Bride. Wow, I didn't yeah. that. Princess Bride. It's cheesy, but I love it. A love letter to a future self. Better is always on the horizon. So now it's a package. Mm-hmm. Please use three or less words mm-hmm. to describe the following. Love. Deep, lasting, and true. Aging. Inevitable. Style. Um, grace, personality, um, and identity. Opel. Thoughtful, unique, and feminine. Now we're out of the package. Okay. What's the biggest lesson you've learned recently? <laughs> um, to stand up for myself and be true to who I am. And uh, can you please share three wisdoms you have learned along the years? Um, stand up for what you believe in. <laughs> um, be kind to others, always. You never know who you're going to come across. Um to share, share creatively, share the love, share, share the experience, share the questions, share the worries, the concerns. Um, and you'll be surprised at what will come back for you to, to help with all of those things. Um, you have the answers. Mm. You have the answers. Yes, that's that's a really good one. Yeah. Um, last one. Mm-hmm. What are you currently seeking? I am currently seeking the best version of myself. And I don't think I have fully stepped into her yet. Wow. That's so poetic. Oh, thanks. <laughs> That's it. Thank you so much. No, you're welcome. I'm not. No, no, Thank you so much for tuning in and staying till the end. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please leave us a review or comment on Apple Podcast, and find us on Instagram and Spotify at Dear Seekers. All the amazing photos captured by my friend Vayu are on DearSeekers.com. Pay a visit to these women's homes to see what other clothes they choose to wear and what other objects they consciously surround themselves with. And see you in two weeks. Until then, happy seeking. <laughs>